Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. I'm delighted to be joined by prolific author Eves Engler. He's published 11 books and is also an active, active journalist who is constantly um, creating and being published in many mediums. However, one of your uh, most important books perhaps has been for me the Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy. So I'm delighted to have Yves Sengler join us this morning to talk a little bit about Canadian foreign policy. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could paint a picture for us. What has been the legacy of the Canadian government? You know, we never think of Canada as an empire, but there is a legacy of empire and colonization and so perhaps you can just give us a, an image of what this looks like for people who don't pay attention to all the things that are happening in the world. Well, I mean, Canadian foreign policy uh, is uh, basically driven by support for empire, uh, historically British, today American, and support for Canadian corporate interests. And uh, despite the rhetoric, uh, it's much more militaristic than people uh, often recognize. Uh, I think what we're seeing uh, in Afghanistan today with uh, the Taliban uh, uh, taking over uh, all the major cities of the country, um, they've been in control of lots of the landmass for quite a while, uh, but now they've taken uh, even Kabul. So once U.S. troops uh, pulled out, uh, or most U.S. troops pulled out, um, basically the government that we, we have been backing for two decades uh, just sort of collapsed even with barely without any uh, fighting and, and that's the legacy of Canada's most important uh, war since uh, uh, since World War II uh, about 40,000 Canadian troops were in Afghanistan from 2001 to 2014 and all this uh, killing and most of the killing was of course Afghans who uh, who died uh, depending on it's not clear exactly how many but certainly into the a hundred thousand minimum and hundreds of thousands depending exactly on, on how you uh, uh, quantify you know the indirect uh, deaths and this was you know a thing that a war that most of the Canadian media the Canadian establishment political parties uh, celebrated for for the for the vast majority of this uh, 13 year of of uh, Canadian troops uh, being in Afghanistan, and um, it should lead to uh, a defunding of the Canadian military. It should lead to uh, the uh, the disbanding of the arms companies, and it should lead to uh, a lot of uh, embarrassment for the uh, for the different uh, think tanks and uh, militarist associations that uh, promoted this war. Um, but um, unfortunately, it's unlikely uh, to. Uh, to do that much of of that, because even when uh, when their imperial uh, wars uh, collapse on them, even by their own standards, there's little accountability. Uh, it's not just in Afghanistan. We've seen that. We've seen that with Libya, where Canada played an important role in the bombing and uh, um, war and NATO war in Libya, and uh, and every I mean it turned into a total disaster. Libya is still basically at. Uh, 
uh, civil war, and uh, there's no accountability for for Canada's rule there uh, either. So, you know, Canadian foreign policy is, like I said, uh, very much aligned with empire, uh, aligned with uh, uh, advancing corporate interests, and uh, heavy on the rhetoric of uh, democracy, women's rights, uh, uh, helping uh, helping the poor. But if you actually look more closely, it's really about uh, geostrategic uh, and corporate uh, calculations. One of the things that um, you do really well is um, helping us unpack this very well-crafted PR campaign that Canada is a humanitarian nation. Can we talk a little bit about this uh, presence in the world where, you know, we're constantly showing up pretending to be humanitarians, but Haiti uh, has recently had another disastrous earthquake, and you wrote an article saying, with friends like Canada, hating in trouble. And can you talk about why you wrote this article? What's the significance of our presence in Haiti in the past decade? Yeah, well, so first of all, there was a, a terrible earthquake uh, a couple of days ago in um, that hit particularly the, uh, the southwest of the country. didn't hit uh, in any significant way the capital, the biggest by far the biggest city, Pohopanis. But it did hit uh, pretty badly uh, Lekai, uh, a smaller city, uh, and a couple of other uh, urban centers. The, the numbers are still coming in in terms of uh, uh, deaths, but, uh, but the latest is something like over, uh, over 1,500 people dead, uh, I think 6,000 people uh, injured, clearly thousands and thousands of people who've, uh, who've you know, been made homeless and lost uh, the little bit little bit that they had and so it's clearly uh quite devastating it's also very traumatic because 10 years ago 11 years ago there was a terrible earthquake that that uh, left tens of thousands probably uh, hundreds of thousands uh, dead uh, mostly in poho prince uh so for all those people who went through that previous earthquake it's obviously very traumatic to uh, to uh, have another uh, similar type of experience uh, so this is this is a time when there should be international solidarity. Uh, Canada has lots that it could offer uh, from the standpoint of uh, helping in the context of an earthquake. It's it's a common practice for uh, countries to uh, to support each other when there's international uh, you know when there's major disasters. You know, like right now there are uh, uh, Mexican. Uh, uh, firefighters helping out in with forest fires in British Columbia, um, and uh, that's a you know very good kind of uh, practice of you know concrete uh, solidarity in times of uh, in times of difficulty. So that that's what uh, one would hope that Canada would do. The problem is is that there's a little something called history, and the history is is that Canada has used these uh, disasters in Haiti, not just the earthquake, the earthquake most uh, in 2010, most obviously, but other uh, disasters, uh, tropical storms, um, has basically used these to uh, increase its power over the country. The, like the 2010 earthquake, uh, as, as uh, opportunities, well, it sees them both as, as political crises to manage and opportunities to deepen control. Uh, so, for instance, after 2010, uh, Canada basically pushed... Uh, elections uh, to get rid of uh, sort of mildly social democratic 
uh, President René Préval and used the weakness of the Haitian state uh, after the earthquake uh, to put in place this uh, neo-duvalierist thug, uh, uh, Michel Martelly, who was part of this this violent... Uh, and he was a member of the Tonton Makout, who were the, 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 the violent arm of the 30-year Duvalier dictatorship when he was younger. And so we used this to, uh, to gain greater control over Haiti. We sent a couple thousand troops after the earthquake in 2010. Uh, we didn't send the heavy urban search and rescue teams. And according to the internal government documents, Canadian government documents, they sent the troops to, uh, to ensure that uh, the former ousted president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who we had uh, forced out of the country in 2004, overthrew his elected government that to uh, make sure that he didn't come back amidst the power vacuum after the earthquake and to ensure that there wasn't some sort of like popular revolt after the earthquake. So that's why we sent 2,000 troops. So we have this horrible, horrible devastation and the U.S. sends something like 15,000 troops and Canada sends 2,000 troops, uh, not primarily to protect, uh, to aid Haitians, but to, to guarantee political control over the country. Um, that's the relationship that we're locked into with regards to Haiti. Uh, Canadian policy has been one of undermining Haitian democracy, undermining Haitian sovereignty, uh, undermining, quite frankly, Haitians' capacity to deal with earthquakes. Because the the problem is not just that Haiti is on fault lines with regards to earthquakes; that that is a clearly a problem. But it's that it doesn't the infrastructure is so poor that it collapses uh, even when the earthquakes aren't that strong of an earthquake. Similar type of earthquake, uh, if it was to hit. Vancouver or Tokyo, um, you know, there, there would be some damage. There'd probably be, you know, some people who would lose their lives, but it would be, you know, quite few. Uh, but because the infrastructure uh, is so poor uh, in Haiti, and that's an SSE that's without even many, you know, big buildings, it's that, you know, two, three story uh, buildings um, are collapsing and people dying um, that could very, very easily be built in ways that were earthquake resistant. But but the place has been so impoverished and it's been impoverished by a long history of uh, French, U.S., Canadian domination and and the determining of Haitian affairs. So that's sort of some of the, the, the context for the article I wrote. And I just want to go in a slightly different direction, but a week ago, two uh, people from the, the Rideau Institute, which is a uh, supposedly left-wing Canadian uh, foreign policy um, uh, think tank, uh, Walter Dorn and Peggy Mason, Peggy Mason's the head of the Rideau Institute, they published a commentary, an op-ed in the, in the Globe and Mail, where they basically, it was on uh, August 9th, which is uh, uh, Peacekeepers Day, I think it's either National or International Peacekeepers Day. And they basically complained about how this lack of Canada's involvement in UN peacekeeping, and, and uh, we need more Canadian involvement in UN peacekeeping, and, and just this sort of ode to this mythology of Canada as a peacekeeping nation. Well, this op-ed from these supposedly progressive uh, writers, uh, officials, it, it just completely denies, completely ignores that Canada's most important peacekeeping mission in recent years 
was in Haiti in 2004. It was a peacekeeping mission that helped in overthrowing the elected government, uh, that oversaw or protected this coup government that killed thousands of people. And then this, the UN force that we instigated with the U.S. and France after overthrowing the elected government, it, it brought cholera into Haiti because they were so indifferent about Haitian lives that they were dumping their, their, their sewage, their feces in water that people were drinking from. And tens of thousands of Haitians died because of this cholera. And even after they introduced cholera, UN bases were found to continue to be dumping their waste in this completely inappropriate uh, manner that, that, you know, led to like more than a million people ill, like a big proportion of the whole country got ill from this, this cholera that hadn't, cholera hadn't known, known uh, more than a century. There was no, rec, you know, no history of cholera in Haiti. So when, you know, supposed progressives write in the pages of the Gold Mail, we, we need more Canadian peacekeeping, you ask yourself, what, do we need more of what Canada did in Haiti when they overthrew the elected government? We brought in this peacekeeping force that killed all kinds of people after the coup and then occupied the country for, for uh for basically 17 years, and right until today, the UN doesn't, it's no longer a major military mission, but it continues to be a major political player in determining Haitian affairs. This is sort of progressive opinion in Canada, is even, uh, you know, just sort of blindly supporting peacekeeping as if it's ipso facto a good thing, because it has a UN uh, uh, okay of, of it. You know, ignoring further history of the Canada's UN mission, the assassination of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, or the fact that the Korean War in the early 1950s was also a UN mission. So this is the reality of the discussion of Canadian foreign policy is, uh, you know, truth um, is completely excluded from the official discussion. You have a, this narrowness of debate between the hard militarists who are like, yeah, let's just send our troops to go kill people, and then the people who are saying, no, no, what we need to do is we need to be more engaged with UN, UN missions and completely ignoring the you know, power dynamics and, the, and often the imperial character of those uh, UN missions. And, and the case of Haiti is, a, uh, unfortunately, a, a preeminent example of, of uh, the just uh, complete um, uh, backwardness of, of Canadian foreign policy discussion. You know, I, I was in Haiti in 2011, months after the earthquake had taken place, and months after millions and millions of dollars had been uh, gathered from people who care, who sent, um, who sent money to, to alleviate the problem. And when we were there, you were right, uh, there were um, UN uh, vehicles that were like completely brand new with air condition and the whole place was mil militarized. Meanwhile, the people had no water. There was no water to drink. The hotel we stayed at was compromised, had a huge crack on it. And when you turn the water, the water that came back was black. And so you have all these very rich nations present, you know, sucking up a lot of the money that had been sent for HM people. There was no evidence that work was being done on restructuring or creating homes for people. What was very evident was that the the beaches, you know, the, the areas where people had owned homes 
were being, um, the people were kept from those areas. And eventually we know what happens, right? Those areas are taken up and they're given to hotels and whatever, you know, just like it happened in New Orleans, you know, with people who were displaced there as well. So I think for, for us to remember is that colonization and racism go hand in hand, right? Empire happens uh, because we are able to see other people as less deserving. And the story we're fed is that, oh, there's just so much corruption in those countries. Those people are so natural. It's like almost like, you know, it's a natural occurrence that people in Latin America, people in the Caribbean, people in Africa are just corrupt and violent. You know, that we don't we don't see the history of violence that is constantly being imposed. And we don't see that actually the violence is coming to them, that they're not the ones creating it a lot of the times. So... Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, with when you have a foreign policy so violent towards others, you can't be one thing somewhere and another thing somewhere else, right? I find that that same violence also gets reverberated internally, you know, towards your own indigenous people and uh, poor people in this country. Can you talk a little bit about how that not only is seen manifested in the kinds of policies we see today, uh, whether it be pipelines or displacement of indigenous people, but the kinds of um, you know aggressions that we're seeing unfolding. Yeah, well, the first, the first thing I want to make really clear with regards to like corruption and violence in Haiti, for instance, we put in place, like not in an abstract sense, which is the case in many places where, you know, to create the conditions that, that enable the rise of these sort of right-wing forces. But in the case of Haiti, we put, con- over the past decade, we have put in place these far-right uh, mafioso types to lead Haiti. And it's like concurrently or previously, in since 2000, we destroyed the most popular political party in Haitian history. That was a pro pro poor party that was trying to to sort of uh, overcome many of the inequities and and uh, dysfunctions of, of of Haitian society. So on one hand, we put in place and have backed up these these uh, these mafioso types, but and previous to that, we undercut, we enabled these, these far-right forces by undercutting these, uh, these sort of uh, uh, popular, pro- mildly progressive, not, there's nothing revolutionary, just mild kind of reformist. So, yeah, it's very concrete kind of engagement in, in the violence. Now, now I think that um, certainly the racisms come home, right? When you have the media sphere framing... Haiti is this completely backward place, unable to, you know, govern its affairs and this, you know, and all this kind of colonial type imagery that, of course, uh, has a has a negative impact on the uh, the standing, how, you know, Haitians, particularly in Canada, are, are viewed and also more generally uh, black people. So so there is definitely the colonial kind of imperial kind of uh, ideological efforts, racisms do have a, a consequence, you know, within what we call uh, what we call Canada. An important way to understand Canadian foreign policy is, is as basically an extension of the British Empire that conquered Turtle Island, 
right? Probably the clearest thing is with the Canadian military. The Canadian military, you know, is the force that, that helped conquer these lands from Indigenous people. The Canadian military is the British military until some point, it's never exactly clear when it formally goes from the British to the Canadian, but there's sort of, of steps and at one point it's, you know, formally Canadian military, but it's still all staffed by, you know, British officials that have been involved in conquering all around the world. And, you know, we still have the name Royal. It's still the Royal Canadian Air Force, the Royal Canadian Navy. So the Canadian military has always seen itself as part of the preeminent imperial force in the world. Studies that have shown this compared to Canadian attitudes of Canadian military commanders to some other uh, militaries that have a, have a connection to, to Britain, the Indian, Argentinian, and some other countries. And the Canadian military commanders see themselves as part of this dominating force. So the Argentinian military officials see themselves as sort of a, you know influential regional force, but the Canadian military officials see themselves as part of like a, a global, in, in polite terms, they would say, you know, policeman. But what that really is saying is, you know, a part of this, this global, uh, at this point, U.S.-led empire, historically, of course, British empire. And how does that manifest itself within Canada? There's been a whole history of the, the UK military, uh, you know, obviously dispossessing indigenous people, also uh, repressing uh, strikes. That was the, that was what the UK military did for the that were the militia did for for decades, and they repressed dozens and dozens of of strikes into the uh, into the 1930s. There's elements that continue right up until today, where you see that you know the military was you know spying on Black Lives Matters uh, protests, uh, spying on different uh, indigenous. I don't know more or another indigenous uprisings. So the reality is, is that at this point, we've kind of contained the military in its domestic functions to, to having eliminated the worst of the abuses. The worst of the abuses take place abroad. Um, but, you know, it's still this force within Canadian uh, uh, political life. And then, you know, taking take, you know, another part of Canadian foreign policy and, and, and domestic policy, like something like the mining sector. Well, the mining sector, Canada is, is a global mining powerhouse. Well, that's completely tied to a history of exploiting uh, First Nations lands and developing a level of expertise, developing a level of, you know, capital uh, accumulation. And that process, you know, isn't just historical, it obviously continues as well, where there's uh, extraction taking place and uh, many times con contested uh, extraction on Indigenous lands. And again, the same kind of dynamic generally plays out is that, you know, yes, the, the ecologically abusive and sometimes, you know, you know, violent nature of that extraction, the worst of the abuses usually take place abroad. So, you know, it take place in the place in the countries of the most impoverished and, 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 and weakest. So being a company in the Congo or a Canadian company in Guatemala would tend to be uh, more uh, ecologically damaging and more violent than that same company operating in Canada, even on indigenous lands, uh, because they're you know somewhat more constrained by different political constraints. But yes, the more these companies get empowered in their in their international operations, the more you know we see that power manifest within Canada as well. Um, so yes, there is definitely uh, the connections between foreign policy and uh, and domestic uh, domestic abuses, domestic exploitation, and domestic injustices.
It also naturalizes violence, you know, the more we attack and destroy people's ability to elect the governments they choose, as in the case of Haitian people being denied, you know, Aristide to even participate in the elections, you know, and uh, to to destroy the Lavalas party, to destroy any sense of autonomy within the people, the more you're going to have people who are desperate, who will risk their lives to go back to the places that are colonizing them. You know, when we start seeing the victims as the aggressors, right, <laughs> instead of seeing how they were victimized and how the aggression has forced them to flee, to leave, to be displaced, to be refugees and migrants in other places, um, when we start to make those connections, um, then perhaps we will start to take more responsibility. When when you think about our role as uh, Canadian people, I mean, in the time of pandemic, everybody seems to be running scared. And it seems to me the government has taken a lot of liberties in terms of policies, you know, where, whether it be financing um, the fossil fuel industry or whether it be siphoning large portions of our taxes to industries that perhaps citizens wouldn't agree upon. How do you see us moving a post-pandemic future where we can have participatory actions towards justice? Uh, it's the same, you know, sort of standard thing as previous. It's work. It's just it's just organizing. It's mobilizing. It's anti-war activism. It's solidarity activism. It's mining injustice uh, campaigning. It's building up progressive media that doesn't just say what the you know powerful want to hear. I think that the the pandemic opened up some political opportunities, but I think it has made people fearful and fear is generally not something that's good for a progressive, socialistic type of uh, political uh, uh, movements. It tends to be actually benef- more uh, beneficial to uh, sort of right-wing conservative kind of movements. But what, what the pandemic has shown is that, uh, first of all, that governments uh, can you know, can create money, if you want to frame it like that. That's not exactly correct, but basically that they can... They can. They have the means, the capacity to to intervene, to uh, you know, move us away from fossil fuels, or you know, build tens of thousands of units of social housing, or uh, or you know, these different things that they claim there was no money for. Uh, that's that's never been correct. It's, it's a matter of mobilizing the uh, the resources behind uh, these projects, and we have. You know, human beings who have the skills uh, want to do the work. Uh, so, you know, we could have a serious effort of mitigating the climate crisis by, you know, f- for instance, building tens, even hundreds of thousands of units of co-op and uh, social housing and centers of cities that are, you know, car-free housing that deals with the housing crisis that we have and the affordability uh, issues around housing in a number of number of major cities, but also helps mitigate the uh, climate chaos that we're, we're seeing. Um, so I think that the, the pandemic offers some, uh, I think has opened some people's eyes up to some of those uh, questions. Uh, I also think that the forest fires and the, the floods and different uh, so-called uh, natural disasters taking place all around the world. Um, has uh, made it just completely clear that there needs to be absolutely radical uh, transformation 
uh, if we want to have a chance to uh, to have you know uh, some form of human civilization in a in a hundred years or 150 years from now, if there's not radical uh, reductions in greenhouse gases. Thank you so much for all the things that you do, for all the ways that you bring clarity. Thank you again for being with us today. Thanks, Sonia. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.